Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Gabriel Garcia Marquez famously said that it's much easier to start a war than it is to end it. Certainly, we've seen this up close and personal in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and even if we look more closely at the history, both world wars. It's difficult to lose a war, but just as difficult to win, since winning a war is certainly not the same as winning the peace. We see often in the corporate world that the founders of companies may be great at startups, but not so good at running mature companies. War is not that different. Those that start them, that direct them, and sometimes even win them, may not be so good at ending them in a way that cements or makes worthwhile any victory. All these are important things to think about in the crucible of Ukraine, because someday this war will also end, and whether it will be worth the loss of lives and treasure for the Ukrainian people or for Russia is certainly an open question. It's hard to imagine that either side is thinking about that end game at this point, but certainly they should be. And that's our focus today as I'm joined by our guest, Gideon Rose. Gideon Rose is the Mary and David Boys Distinguished Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, he was the editor of Foreign Affairs from 2010 to 2021, prior to which he was its managing editor. He has also served as Associate Director of Near East and South Asian Affairs on the National Security Council and the Deputy Director of National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has taught American foreign policy and authored the book, How Wars End. It is my pleasure to welcome Gideon Rose here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Gideon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Is there any reason to think, certainly from a historical perspective, that, that those that either enter wars or start wars really spend a whole lot of time thinking about how they're going to end and what the resolution might really be? So it's a great question. They should, but they don't always do so. Uh, the great philosopher of war, Karl von Clausewitz, uh, famously defined war in two different ways. One is as an act of force to compel the enemy to do your will. You have to beat up somebody else. The other is as the continuation of politics with other means. You have a goal that you're trying to achieve, and the force you're afflicting is not meaningless. It's designed to get somebody to do something. And so war has these two different aspects. It's the use of force, but the use of force to achieve some goal. And strictly speaking, the only way to do that sensibly is to have your goal in mind and develop a strategy that deploys force to achieve it and then try to make that strategy work. Nobody goes to war or no sane person does without thinking through how they're going to achieve their goals, how it's going to end, what they're going to do, what they're trying to achieve and how to get it. But in practice, many people either aggressors turn out to be not particularly willing to contemplate bad scenarios and therefore often launch wars with wishful thinking in which they say they're addressing the end game, but they're really doing so with a bunch of wishful thinking and ignoring all the real problems, the way Putin did in uh, Ukraine, obviously, the way we've done often uh, Iraq being the best example. And oftentimes the people who are on the other side of the war feel compelled to fight because they're attacked or because the situation develops and in effect say, well, we need to do this now and get in and we'll worry about the details of how it all ends later. 
So even though it's, as it were, best practices in military strategy to start with the notion of your end and figure out how you're going to get there and then base your strategy on that, in the real world of human fallible statesmen, it doesn't always happen because especially once you get going, the pressures of war itself make it very hard to think seriously and rationally about what you're doing because you're very, very emotional. How much of it depends on the nature of the war, the type of war, whether it's one that is about territory or about politics or in days gone by even about religion? So this is exactly, uh, Clausewitz actually says specifically, the most important thing is to figure out what kind of war you're fighting. So I would say it's very important to figure out what kind of war you're fighting, to be clear and self-aware about what you want and how you're going to get it. But there are indeed structural similarities that uh, are brought out by war, regardless of many other seemingly different factors. So, for example, a war of religion, a war of ideology, uh, they may resolve itself on the battlefield into a war of territory because at the end of the day, somebody's trying to capture territory and rule over the people within it. So at the end of the day, whatever other things are going on in war, it comes down to combat and the ability to essentially physically take something away from somebody else or stop somebody else from doing that to you. Uh, and and Clausewitz has another point that Combat in war is like the exchange of money in an economic transaction. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on, but it's the actual time when money changes hands that the system works. And that's the same thing that happens in war. And that has its own logic, um, its own grammar. Does it have that same logic and, and the same unpredictability in some respects? Even if one goes into war and and follows all the edicts of the Powell Doctrine, for example, knowing what the objectives are, knowing whether it's in the country's national interest, and and whether or not it's been fully analyzed. So that kind of uh, uh, the, the the Powell Doctrine, the Weinberger Doctrine, the 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 kinds of lists of things you should do that you're referring to are best thought of, I would say, as pleas by professional to think through what you're doing properly. They're very rarely actually followed by anybody in office. Um, and the actual thinking that goes into a war is very rarely as uh, uh, worked out as it should be. Um, but basically, if you were doing this, you would say, like, if you were Putin, you should have said, what am I trying to achieve by this war? What is my plan for achieving this what do I do if my initial plans don't work out? And I have a whole in effect, it's essentially like a business plan or a strategy because what you're engaging in is an entrepreneurial enterprise. You're starting something new. You're doing something. It happens to be very violent. You're using force, but it's, it's a purposive project. And like many things, sometimes these things are not planned out as well as they should be. And uh, the need to pivot once you get into trouble is a sort of a standard feature of war because things never go exactly as people expect. And one of the things that, that enters into that equation is the difference between policymakers that, that may have in fact started the war or at least set the predicate for the war and the military leaders who are actually fighting it. Exactly, because as I said, war involves the use of force to achieve political goals, which means there are specialists, as it were, in the political goals. That's the national command authority, the civilian leaders, whoever's running the war uh, and trying to achieve it. And then there's the specialists in the use of force, the military, and they will want to do things in a way that are as efficient for the use of force. Uh, but the political types 
not just might have a different view, but want to make sure that the force links up to uh, what the goal is. And that is the hardest part because it's much easier to think of the logic of politics or the logic of force. And it's very hard to think of them together because not everything that is logical in one area is logical in the other. And so you have to do trade-offs. And that's why, at another point, I'm going back to him, but he's the greatest philosopher and thinker about war ever, so he's worth paying back to. Clausewitz says that it's at the end of the war when the statesman has to become a general, uh, and that is the, the, the sort of apogee of, of strategic art, because you're bringing the two sides, politics and war, together. You're, you're not just figuring out how to take this particular field and you're not just deciding what's in the country's national interest in terms of an objective. You're linking the two things together in the actual world. And that's the toughest part of war. And that's where people usually screw up, as you can see happening very in front of our eyes in Ukraine today. Putin had goals. He had means. He did not connect the two and now is scrambling to figure out what to do next. And part of it, to use your analogy about the corporate world and a, and a business plan per se, you're dealing with very different skill sets that involve the skill set starting a war, fighting a war, and ultimately ending it and making peace. Yeah, it's not so much that it's different skill sets in terms of starting it and ending it. It requires emotional and intellectual discipline. And that's something that's rarely uh, uh, in evidence in, in, in accepting great policymakers or leaders. So, for example, the, you often start a war in cold blood or in not quite the, the, the passionate state that you uh, are in later on once the killing has begun, once there's sunk costs, once you have all sorts of psychological procedures designed to support your uh, support your yourself psychologically and avoid cognitive dissonance. And the challenge with war termination, the challenge with ending a war, is that you're not only dealing with these actual problems I've talked about, about making force serve political ends and how to do that in practice on a changing battlefield, but you're doing that in a context in which you are almost uniquely primed not to think rationally. You're Think of how angry we and emotional we have gotten just watching the Ukrainian war. Now imagine if you're Zelensky or if you're Putin, you have all the challenge of dealing with war management, but you also have to do it against the backdrop of your hopes and fears about the, the, the death and destruction that's going on, the criticism and support that you're feeling and hearing. And so all those things make it even harder to figure out how to do things rationally and make your ends you know, and means come into alignment even harder than it was in the first place. And you probably didn't do a good job of it in the first place because people don't take these things as seriously as they should. And certainly with contemporary war, the other factor that seems like it should enter into the equation is the speed at which events move much quicker today than they did in previous wars. So that is true, but it's also not true because some things move more quickly. Certainly a lot of information does, but the actual pace of the fighting uh, uh, doesn't necessarily. So, you know, the six-day war literally took six days. Um, the, Putin thought he was going to have a four-day war. Uh, it's gone on into his third month uh, now. Uh, the, the, the siege of Kiev, the Battle of Kiev, uh, the Battle of Kiev was longer than Okinawa. Uh, uh, the Battle of Okinawa. So the, there's enough time for this to happen. The, the, the problem is that you're getting information from the actual fighting, 
And then you're trying to use that information and update your sort of calculations as to what's going on. And it's very hard to read the information coming, the returns on your strategy, because things are there's the fog of war and things are very murky. And then at a certain point, when you do get information on the battlefield, you have to ask yourself, is this going the way that I expected? And do I keep going forward? Is it going the way that I expected I should stop now? Is it going differently than I expected? And if so, can I change or affect that? And all these things have to be done um, while you are emotionally caught up in everything you're doing. So the speed has, has made it in some ways easier to figure out what's going on. You now have much better information than you did in, pa- in the past. But that doesn't mean that wars can't continue. We were in Afghanistan for you know decades. We were in Iraq for you know, nearly a decade. Um, we were in Vietnam for a decade. Uh, these things can play out uh, over very long periods of time, just not at a permanent level of high intensity. And to that point, how much is timing a critical element in when to try and maybe bring things to an end? And how much more difficult is that timing made by the fact that that public awareness is so much greater and moving at a faster pace today? Well, that's a great question, because the if you were just looking at the situation strategically, it would you could definitely see moments when, uh, as it's been said, there were ripe for negotiation. So, for example, if one side thinks it's winning, it's going to keep doing that um, rather than turn to negotiations uh, or try to end the war. If it thinks it's going to win, if it's winning but will start to lose, that creates an interesting opening. Similarly, if one side is losing it's, uh, but it thinks it can reverse the situation, it will uh, probably try to continue fighting. Uh, but if it's losing and realizes it's not going to get back, then it might be willing to negotiate. In my research, it seems to me that sort of wars have three phases. The first phase is essentially the initial initial phase, like the opening in a chess match. You know, one side attacks, another side responds, and the game is on. Uh, then you have a phase, a long phase in the middle, in which basically both sides, having committed to war, uh, try to use the fighting to achieve their goal. Now, each side thinks they can win. There's a lot of uncertainty, or else they wouldn't have fought in the first place. And uh, the actual process of battle goes on as each side trusts the force of its arms until one of two things happens. Either the tide of war turns dramatically in, and, and pretty irrevocably in one direction that everybody can see what's going on, or uh, it, it sort of slides into a stalemate uh, and both sides realize it's going to be very, very hard to move it off that. And, and in those situations, when the war, when both sides agree the war is going strongly in one direction or both sides agree that you have a kind of stalemate, that's the moment or the situation when you can imagine ending the war because that's when both sides have a legitimate reason to prefer giving up the fighting and pursuing their relationship through non-military means rather than continuing the fighting. And, and so uh, we're actually, you know, and, and that's the point at which in effectively you have to sort of get yourself out of the emotions of war and start to think rationally about, gee, is this the, are we at a turning point? Is this right? In Bosnia, for example, in the very beginning of Bosnia, even though there were a lot of calls uh, to stop the war, it was very hard to do so 
because one side was doing very well, another side was doing badly. There was a lot of interlocked populations and no obvious or easy stopping point. And it was just a nightmare for war termination as well as for the actual participants involved. After a while, the war itself, the progress of the war, first of all, it cleared up a lot of the ethnic uh, enclaves and made the battle lines and political lines uh, a little more uh, synonymous with each other at great human cost, but it simplified the situation. And then the Serbs sort of started to lose while the Croats got stronger and you got to a point where there was a rough balance between the two sides. And that period of a rough balance between the two sides in which the former losing side had gotten strong enough to threaten the former winner, the former winner had gotten weak enough to be worried about what was going to happen next, and they fought back to a sort of middle stalemate. That plus a sort of uh, a relatively simple map at this point created the situation in which a negotiator like Richard Holbrook could take the participants to Dayton and forge a peace and get the, you know, the end game that we saw in Yugoslavia and end that war. It wasn't possible before, and it wouldn't necessarily have ended the way it did if um, Holbrook hadn't launched a major you know, negotiating effort. And even then, it was still sort of a dicey thing. But clearly, the conditions on the ground can matter. We haven't seen them in Ukraine yet, but we could be getting to the place now where we're seeing them because both sides are now about to get to a point either where the balance has is about to switch between the Ukrainians getting strong enough to push back and the Russians getting weak and a kind of stalemated middle uh, uh, line of contact uh, getting ever closer to uh, where the start of the war was. That could be the conditions in which you could move towards uh, a settlement or at least a cessation of the massive violence in the next month or so in, in Ukraine. Do the early days of a war, the initial forays on both sides, set a tone, a kind of culture for the war that plays out in the way it finally comes to an end? So I think the answer to that is yes and no, in the sense that there are realities that are made apparent during the early days of the war that end up affecting how it all plays out. But I don't think it's like a sort of total path determinacy. Uh, and so here's a good example. The, the failure of the Russians to take Kiev quickly and to conquer all of, of Ukraine uh, in a snap early on in the first week of this war uh, has been huge and decisive and has colored everything that's since then. But it wasn't so much that everything happened just because what happened the first week. It was the same qualities of the respective forces, the Ukrainian overperformance militarily, the Russian underperformance military that, militarily that made those events go the same way, then have continued to operate. So in effect, the first week showed dynamics that uh, have continued to operate throughout the whole war. And so the Russians, although they've done a little better, in the Battle of the Donbass than they did in the Battle for Kiev, uh, had not done that much better. And the basic patterns of overperformance by Ukraine, underperformance by Russia have continued to manifest themselves throughout the whole war. But there are times when you could imagine a particularly significant uh, turning point that then nobody can recover from, but that tends to be rare. It's the middle phase rather than the early phase that sets the tone because essentially each side has some expectations of quick victory when those are disabused 
they always invariably double down on a real hard period of combat in the middle. And then after trying that, depending on how that goes, you might get to an endgame. Are there historical parallels that we should look at with respect to this war in Ukraine? Oh, there are lots of parallels, um, and it depends which particular aspect you're looking at. One that I've written on recently is how this resembles a, uh, a, a classic limited war in the nuclear age. Ever since 1945, uh, policymakers have, have had to grapple with the question of war with nuclear weapons in, the, in, the, in, in proximity, because basically if every other war, you used all the weapons you had. If you do that now, you'd end up with you know, obliterating the planet. And so every war since 1945 that isn't a total war is a consciously limited war if it involves a nuclear power like Russia or the United States or China. And so the, uh, the belligerents in Korea and in every later conflict essentially developed a set of rules of the road for fighting a war conventionally without breaking the nuclear uh, taboo, uh, not because they were sort of soft-hearted, but because it turned out that nuclear weapons are really only useful for deterring other major attacks uh, and other nuclear weapons, not so much for actually usable fighting in a war. And so they haven't been used uh, they weren't going to be used, and I wrote that in Ukraine. They haven't been used so far in Ukraine because there's no real good thing you can imagine to get by using them. And so what the parties in these wars do is they end up fighting conventionally incredibly hard with everything they've got conventionally while still respecting some red lines like using nukes, attacking another's territory, threatening the regime of the nuclear power and so forth. And so that's how you can see this playing out. The question about a Russia, a no-fly, the U.S. In, or NATO enforcing a no-fly zone in the Ukraine conflict, or sending troops, um, or trying to cap, decapitate the Russian, you know, leadership—all those things, which have occasionally were occasionally talked about by some people early on uh, in the war, have been strictly avoided by uh, the U.S. government, uh, not just as a matter of choice, but because of a matter of almost professional necessity and best practice. Those are the rules you know you don't get directly involved. We don't want to be in a situation in which the Russians and we potentially are killing each other because that would trigger an es a potential for escalation up to nukes. We don't want the Russians to think that their regime is under threat because that might lead them to be so desperate as to actually use a nuke. And so, in effect, both sides are fighting with whatever they've got inside the Ukrainian theater um, rather than uh, escalating the fight to, to a nuclear level or to other kinds of places. And there are patterns like that. There are other patterns that exist, depending on how you want to look at them. The, the, the stupidest, yeah, everyone's always has been impressed by how stupid uh, Putin was in failing to plan properly and basing his invasion on uh, all sorts of wishful thinking about how well it would go. Uh, there are patterns in that regard with lots of U.S. wars. If you all you have to do is think back to uh, the Iraq War, in which the Bush administration really convinced itself in just the same way that it would be easy, that they were going to be greeted as liberators, that this would be uh, that their puppet government would be welcomed, uh, and only to find themselves disabused in exactly the same way. So there are definitely are patterns in which Ukraine 
plays out very similarly to other wars. And from that point of view and thinking about it from particularly Putin's point of view and, and, and losing in this situation, I think it was Rumsfeld that once talked about the solution to an intractable military problem is to create a bigger problem, that if you expand the scope of the battlefield or the playing field, that somehow things could take a turn that you might not expect that could work to your advantage. So that can be true, but it could also be very, very risky. And the situation in which a leader might want to resort to the ultimate uh, uh, disaster or escalate to a totally chaotic level, like the using of nukes or whatever, would be one in which they really see no other choice because they're facing terrible destruction or, their, or, or imminent death themselves, which is why we don't want to keep talking about, let's say, getting rid of Putin, because you know, the, the one thing that could make him potentially willing to uh, uh, bring down the house like Samson all around him would be if he felt that he, that was going to happen anyway and he had no choice. As long as he thinks that he is safe and there's every reason to believe that however much discontent there is in Russia, he's not in imminent danger of death or anything like that because uh, he has strong control over his regime – Essentially, you want this is a war of choice for him. It's being sold as a war of necessity. It's being sold as an existential struggle, but it's not. It's a war of choice. The, the Russia existed just fine before 2014, and uh, it, it, it could exist without Ukraine. Um, and so what you're really trying to get Putin to do is recognize that he has more to gain by backing down than he does by escalating forward. He, he's been sort of held in a kind of stalemate. He hasn't gotten what he wanted. He might be even being pushed back from the early games that he's getting. And so the choices he's facing now are, do I go forward further and try and escalate, do, which is a very bad option for everybody involved? Do I just keep the stalemate going in a kind of you know low-grade war, which is the sort of default option, you might say? Or do I say, uh, you know what, this was a mistake. My assumptions were wrong. And maybe I should just try and liquidate this and get back to the, you know, walk out and move on and and fight again another live to fight another day, have my economy come back. The challenge with that last uh, course, which is what you want him to take, we would all benefit from his taking that last approach. But if you ask yourself, if you have made a giant mistake, if you are humiliated, if you are being forced and pushed to recognize your mistake by the cold, cruel facts of life. How do you respond psychologically? Well, the answer is most of us remain in denial, and so, uh, or, or we resist it, right? If, so if your wife tells you to do something that you know you should do, it just makes, if you yell, the more she yells at you, the more you are unlikely to want to do it, even if you end up doing good. So what we have to do here, I think, is, is bring in psychology. Um, in from the late 1960s on, in Vietnam, the U.S. knew it had to get out. The entire Nixon administration was about getting the hell out of Vietnam. The question was, how do you do it in a way that wasn't deeply humiliating, deeply uh, corrosive to your credibility, etc.? cetera? In, uh, from the mid-aughts on in Iraq and Afghanistan, we basically felt the same way. How the hell do we get out of here? What do we do now? Um, we don't, how do we do it without having complete disaster follow us? We were able to, you know, the, that is the situation Putin's in now, which is Putin has screwed up. He made wrong assumptions. He, yes, he's a violent thug. Yes, he's evil. Yes, he has done all the bad things people are saying. But in this case, 
in this particular aspect, he is a war leader who has made very bad judgments, listened to his own propaganda, uh, created a system in which yes men told him things about his forces and the likely success of his operation that weren't true. And all that is being uh, revealed in practice on the ground. And so what you're trying to get Putin to do is go through what the psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about as the five stages of grief, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. You're trying to get him to recognize what has happened and accept it all and then make a rational decision to move back. That's his call, not ours. And the question we have and the challenge we have now is how do you facilitate his coming to that conclusion? It means stopping him on the battlefield, but also preparing the ground and in some ways not trying to humiliate him, trying to basically give him a path out that is less that is more attractive than escalation. And, and in terms of escalation, aside from nukes, putting those aside for the moment, he still has the ability to, to maybe send a few missiles Poland's way or Estonia's way, draw NATO into this, and change the comp- whole complexion of the war. So I don't think so, actually, because those are the kinds of things. NATO, the, the great thing about NATO is its Article 5 uh, uh, you know, collective security aspect uh, you, if you bring NATO in, that's, bring, that's, that's bringing the United States in. That's bringing the, the nuclear stuff in. There's a reason why he didn't want Ukraine to join NATO. Think of it that way, because NATO is off limits. There's no reason to think, in my opinion, that he is going to attack NATO or that he was, was even going to attack NATO, because it's precisely that that he realizes could be a sort of semi-permanent uh, uh, membrane that, that blocks him from ever getting this back. Uh, and he knows that attacking NATO, especially in any kind of direct way, would bring on the kind of retaliation and military uh, defeat uh, that that, you know, if, if even the Ukrainians can can beat him up, uh, what NATO forces could do themselves. One, you know, F-35, it, it could do an amazing uh, bit of damage. So I don't think the danger is that the danger that that I think was more plausible, but still unlikely and so far has not yet happened is that he could try to move from the limited war that he's doing to a more expanded war uh, and, in effect, change the name from a special military operation to an actual war, call up the nation's reserves, raise new armies to throw into the battle and so forth. That is a possibility and something that some people were actually expecting him to announce uh, on May 9th in his big speech on Victory Day. the problem with that is, again, he didn't expect this to be as costly as it is. Having decided and realized just how costly it is it, and, and just how much response was – he didn't expect the West to respond as, as, as strongly as it did, Europe to be as united, uh, the sanctions to be as significant. And so the idea that having made a bad judgment, he's, he's going to double down on that at even greater cost – because he found out it was too if – if he found out Ukraine was too expensive, more expensive than he thought, it's unlikely that digging deep into the national bank account to go into you know, permanent geostrategic debt just to try to win it again is what he would do. I think that the more likely scenario is walk away, take a little bit of the Donbass, try to claim a victory, as it were, by taking some territory and then using his control over his own information – 
space to say, hey, that's all I wanted in the first place was this little stretch of territory in the east. Now I've got it. I've taught them a lesson. No one's ever going to worry about, you know, attacking Russia in his own mind. You know, he, he has indeed this, you know, issued terrible punishment to Ukraine. It happens to be unprovoked, but in his mind, he could sell it as uh, to his people as this was necessary and we've, we've got a victory. And I think that's the most likely end game, given what we're seeing here, because the Ukrainians have managed to held off the best the Russians have thrown at them. Russian forces are now getting to the end of their rope for at least this army that they've sent in. And the Ukrainians are now just starting to see the benefits of the massive amounts of military aid and weaponry that NATO is now sending them. And so in the next few weeks, you might have a situation in which the Ukrainians find with these new weapons, they are able to actually turn the tide of the war a little bit. Um, and that would get really interesting again. Finally, in addition to turning the tide of the war with these new weapons, what could Ukraine do politically um, and perhaps in consort with the U.S. and NATO politically to psychologically position Putin to better come to the realizations you were talking about? So this is a great question. And the short answer, of course, is no one knows because no one actually understands Putin completely. But what I would say is the best strategy, best practices strategy would be to have a multi, to essentially confront him, confront Putin with a variety of choices that make it logical for him to choose the one that you want. In other words, Putin has to be, instead of saying there's one strategy that's going to get him to do everything, where this is going to compel him or this is going to entice him, what you want to do basically is present him with a calculus that says, we are fighting you on the ground militarily, and we'll hold that line and continue to fight and actually even get better and push you back. So you want to go this direction, we'll play this game, and we'll happily beat your ass at it the way we've been continuing to do. Do you really want to do that? We're happy to play that if you want. By the same token, we're happy to end this on somewhat reasonable terms. If you want to do that, let's talk about that and what that would mean. And in effect, give him the choice of which way he wants to go while making the costs and benefits of each uh, option uh, uh, one more attractive or one less attractive. The question of how Ukraine does that, how we do that, not on the military side, but on the political side of what is the end that you want this, what does the end game actually look like at this point? Um, this is where I said it gets really interesting. The first big surprise of this war was that Putin actually attacked. The, many people did not think he would. And that he would, and if he did, he certainly wouldn't do so as dramatically and uh, comprehensively as he did. Second big surprise was that the Ukrainians turned out to be better at war than the Russians and fought them back throughout the war. Uh, again, shocking surprise. Nobody called that one. The interest, the third big interesting up in the air question will be okay, so what happens? After Putin, what happens when when the Ukrainians have held the, themselves held off the best the Russians can throw, and Putin is now facing the real question of I have no more immediate reserves to throw into the battle, and what do I do now? 
there the question, as I said, about integrating force and com- and force and politics comes back into the play because you, it's not just a question of will the Ukrainians push him back. It's not just a question of will our aid be able to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians on the ground. It's what point do you switch from fighting to not fighting, which is the way you should think about ending the war? How do you get a settlement in which you say, this is not going to be everything I wanted, but it's better than continuing to have this terrible destruction, which is, uh, you know, going to screw my country. And, and, you know, that's somewhere between now and the Russian border or the status quo lines uh, from February 24th is the point at which there may be some kind of negotiation possibility if both sides can, in effect, get over all the emotions involved, which is very, very difficult, and realize that what they're doing is trying to move forward to a better situation than the current one we're in. And that's going to be achieved not just by fighting, but by negotiating. Gideon Rose, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.